0: Hello, wonderful people. Welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival Presents podcast. I am Casey Bailey, former Birmingham Poet Laureate, and I was delighted to be one of the guest curators for the 2022 Birmingham Literature Festival. For the next few weeks, we're gonna bring you some highlights from last year's festival for you to enjoy whenever you'd like. You can subscribe to this podcast feed and get the new episodes as soon as they're available. This week's episode features two people with unique insights into the UK justice system. Wendy Joseph Casey sat on cases in the Old Bailey for decades. In that time, she also mentored young people and tried to demystify the way justice is served in this country. Dr. Shaheed Yousaf is a prison doctor who has worked for most of his career in Birmingham prisons with the most violent inmates. They were joined on stage by Alwyn Brown,
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival on our first event of our Sunday. Lovely to see so many of you here. It's a great uh, tribute to our panellists but so many people have gathered at this point in the day. My name is Jonathan Davidson. I work for Writing with Midlands, which is the organisation that runs the Birmingham Literature Festival. You may also be interested in knowing, but as well as running the Literature Festival each year, we do a lot of work with emerging writers and established writers, including for children and young people. So we run about 160 workshops a year for children from the age of eight upwards and we run a programme for emerging and established creative writers, and various other things. So if you are interested not only in hearing our guest speakers, but in your own writing, then please have a look at our website, and hopefully you'll find something of interest. So my uh, job is very simple this morning, this afternoon I should say, is to welcome you to thank Arts Council England for their continued support of Writing Miss Midlands and the Birmingham Literature Festival, and to thank the Rep for making it possible to use these lovely venues. I will be saying a few words at the very end to direct you to the book signing table and so on but before we do that we're going to have a wonderful conversation so I'd ask you to welcome please um, Orwin Brown who is going to be chairing the event with Wendy Joseph Casey and Dr Shahed Youssef. Thank you.
2: Thank you Jonathan and and you know, I'll repeat Jonathan's um, thanks to so many of you for coming along. This I don't know if it's is it morning or afternoon, but whatever it is, anyway. So thank you so much for coming along, and I am absolutely thrilled to be presenting this event, chairing this event with with Wendy Casey, as it is now, and and Shahid, um, who have both written, I think, some of the most interesting. Um, empathetic human books that I've read for a long time. I have to say that they have been stolen by my children <laughs> um, many times because they've wanted to read them as well, which is a good sign. My daughter Isabella is in the audience and is now no doubt sort of blushing at the moment. But there we go; she stole one of them. As well. So, I, and I'm going to start off because I want this to be a real discussion about some of I the, don't the issues. Know what you which, mean by, sorry, so that's my. That's my Apple Watch. I'm sorry. I do apologise. I'm going to start off by asking. I think both Wendy and Shahid about. You know, you're here now as authors, but obviously you though. You know, you have come to that from a career in both, in your terms, in health and in Wendy's terms, in the law. Did you think that you would be here? What led you to be here, writing those books about your experiences in life? Wendy, I'll start with you.
3: well, curiously, um, I wanted to be a writer when I was seven. I made the decision then. Uh, and then I lost sight of it completely. When I was seven, I was ill. My dad was reading to me from a book called The Just So Stories One Night. And in The Just So Stories, there's a story about how the alphabet was made, how you can make shapes into sounds, Sounds into letters, letters into words, words into stories, and stories into people's heads, even if they're miles away. And I thought that was so magical when I was seven. I thought I would do it. And then of course, you grow up, and you suddenly realize you can't make a living doing that, or not very easily. And so um, when my mum said, "Well, how do you think you are going to pay the rent?" I changed from reading English at university to reading law. And that's how I got into the law. So it's an extraordinary thing that at the age of 70, when I retired, I've sort of come full circle and come right back (laughs) to being a writer. So to answer your question, Alwyn, if you'd asked me when I was seven, I'd have said, yep, this is exactly where I expect to end up. But if you'd asked me at any time between seven and 70, I'd have said no. And, and when you,
2: that's really, that's really interesting, Wendy. And when you were writing your, your, when you were thinking of being a writer, did you think that you were going to be writing about the experiences that
3: you have had in your, in your role as a, as a judge? No, that came about completely, um, by coincidence because of lockdown. As well as being an ordinary judge um, doing the day job, I was also what was called a diversity and community relations judge, which meant I spent a lot of time with people who didn't understand the system and wanted to. Mm. School children, lots of work with um, those who were mentally unwell, lots of people who came from diverse backgrounds where they felt excluded by the system. When lockdown came, I couldn't do any of that. Mm. I couldn't have the children in. I was out of London. I had the door locked. And I thought, you know what? I'll write about it instead. And so I began to write the stories about what happens in a courtroom in the way I would have explained it to the children and to others if they'd been there.
2: And of course, all stories are about people. Yeah. You know, whatever you write, whether it's fiction or fact or yeah. whatever, they're all about people, aren't they? All stories are about people. Those, those, those common threads that, that are within us always, yeah. I think. yeah. And Shahid, how about, how about you? Did you think that you were going to be an author when you set out? What, what, yeah. what,
4: what brought you to, to write your book? So if you'd asked me when I was seven, I would have said I, um, I would like to be a writer, artist, doctor. Um, and so in that order, in that order. Yeah. um, and so, um, even before studying medicine, I was writing. So I write short stories, flash fiction, novels, um, and I've been painting as well. Um, and then obviously medicine took over, but I always had the interest in writing. Mm. Um, and I never thought I was going to write. I didn't think the two worlds were going to come together mm. because my writing is very different from what? Well, you know, I've written here in Stitched Up. Um, so, and that happened by chance as well, actually. So um, I've, I tell the story in the book, it's in the um, epilogue. Um, I went to, I love coming to literature festivals. So even it's it's an honour to be on the stage because this is one of the festivals I come to every year um, and I love going to masterclasses and writing courses. And I happened to meet um someone you may have heard of um called Kit Deval. Mm-hmm.
3: Oh
4: yeah. Yeah. So I met her in London and her train got cancelled and she needed a way to get back to Birmingham. And I offered to drive her. Um and then when when I was sort of driving her back, she asked me about um my writing endeavors and was clearly unimpressed. <laughs> 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 Probably correctly. Um, and then she asked me what I did. I said, I'm a doctor. And she said, oh, that's interesting, which I don't often get. Uh, and then she said, oh, do you know any prison doctors? Mm. Which was really extraordinary because, you know, where a rarity, even amongst GPs, mm. so I'm a general practitioner. You don't often meet uh, a prison GP. Mm. Um, and then I said, yes, I am. And then I told her my story, <clears throat> which is the book.
2: Mm okay so that's how you, that's how you start off and I think that one of the things that and, and I do urge any of you who haven't read these books to buy and, and, and read and read these books because they are extraordinary I think that one of the things that comes out of both of both both of your books in different ways because obviously you know you're coming at from different perspectives is the is the issue about how do people get to where they are Okay. How do people get to be in front of you, Wendy, when you were, you know, when you were a judge? And how do people then get to where, get to where they are in prison and they're facing all of those, all of those issues? And I just suppose, I suppose it would be interesting to explore that a little bit and what your thoughts are about. So, so, Wendy, what do you think about, about the consequences that get people to, 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 to be up in front of yeah. you faced with a murder charge
3: or manslaughter or infanticide? Or yeah, things. I mean, it's easier to answer it from Shahed's point of view because I know how people get kept to where he was. It's because they've been in front of me and i sent
4: them yes. there.
2: Yes, it, it, um, it, it, it does follow on.
4: There, <laughs> there is some crossover in our work.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but the same principles it, are there, aren't they? Yeah,
3: it, it's, um, I think the first thing to say is you look at people in the dock and it is true but occasionally you see someone who is just bad Mm. and you just know this is a dangerous person and whatever you do with them, they are always going to be dangerous. Mm. But you know, there are so few of them. Really, of all the thousands of people I've seen in the nearly half a century, as I've been both barrister and judge, I could count on the fingers of one hand the people I thought really had the seeds of badness in them. Most people get into a dock because they get into a way of thinking that sort of inures them to doing wrong. They, they come to think of doing wrong as fine, mm. as being okay. And once you're into it, it just gets worse and worse. So one of the major problems that uh, my court, the Old Bailey, which is where I sat um, for the last 10 years. Uh, one of the major problems is knife crime amongst children. And when I say children, I mean children. We sometimes say young people. The number of 16 and 17-year-olds I've sent to prison for life, mm-hmm. um, following convictions for murder. And they are young people. But, you know, if they were yours or mine, we'd say, these are children. And they are, without the maturity to think through what they're doing. Now, of course, a, a child stabs another child for the very simple and obvious reason. He's got a knife in his pocket. Well, there was you a can't,
2: awful can't situation, wasn't there? In, in, or was it in, in, in Lincolnshire, where, yeah. you know, 15-year-old
3: was stabbed upside? Yeah. And I saw it all the time. If you're not carrying a knife you can't do it. However angry you get, however much you lose your self-control, if you haven't got a knife on you, you're not gonna stab someone. And the question of why kids carry knives, it's something people say to me all the time. And and I usually give this answer. If there was one simple answer, Mm. you wouldn't be asking me the question. We would have sorted it out a long time ago. There isn't a simple answer. Mm. There's many, many complex reasons why different kids end up carrying knives. For bravado, because they want to commit crimes, because they're frightened of other people who are yeah. carrying knives, because they want to show off. You know, the knives they can buy on the internet these days, are not they're not kitchen knives. So there's they're bowie knives, things are they're carrying. They're carrying knives that are designed to kill, they're designed to kill animals with all the etchings and carvings and the the metal punched out of them so that when they are put into a body, they come out more easily. You know, these are knives which are designed to kill, but they are um, status symbols amongst the children. And they're so easy for them to get these days. So for any problem like the carrying of knives, There's a multiplicity of reasons why kids or older people Mm. get into doing it. Mm. And, um, you know, we'd all like to think it isn't our children who do that. But I always think it could be anyone's kid who did that. And it could be anyone's kid who's on the receiving end of that knife. Mm -hmm. So... It's a problem It's a problem for us all. And I was saying to you before, Olman, that really it, it's n- not much good looking at the courts to sort it out because by the time it comes to court, mm-hmm. it's too late. Mm-hmm. By the time it comes to court, there's one dead child on a mortuary mm-hmm. slab and there's another one in the dock. And there's nothing in the universe a judge can do to
2: put that right. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, Wendy. And, you know, and I can recall, I was saying to you, you know, before that I don't know if any of you have seen the Inside Man series that have been on where suddenly Tukey's character says, we can all be murderers, you just haven't met your person yet. And I think that there is, I mean, very few of us, thank God, will be murderers. But of course, we don't know what could happen today or tomorrow or the next day and which would which could move us into a situation that we didn't anticipate at all that we would be in So, so, Shaheed, I mean, and of course, you're dealing with people then who've been through, been through the, the, um, the court environment. And, and so what, what, what do you, what do you find with your, with your patients? Because they are your patients, aren't they? Whether they're prisoners or not, they are your patients. Yes. When they, when they come to see you, what sort of, what sort of environment do you think that they, that they, that they have? And how does the environment that they've been brought up in then take itself forward into what, what you're facing when you see them as your patients in prison as a GP? Yeah, so I,
4: I'd echo what um, Wendy said about it's not for the court to fix a broken no. system, and it is a broken system. So 75% of people who are in prison are there for nonviolent crimes. So obviously Wendy works in the High Court in the Old Bailey. Um, so those cases are few and far between. The vast majority of people that we see in prisons are there for fines and drug possession and things like and that? And do
2: you find do you find that, that the prison environment encourages violence amongst people who were not violent before?
4: So um, what keeps a prison safe is prison officers. Mm. When you have adequate numbers of prison officers, um, violence will be controlled. And that's violence from prisoner on prisoner, prisoner on staff. Um, and when those numbers are cut, it becomes of violent and dangerous And of course, they have been
2: cut a lot over the last 10 years or so, haven't
4: they? Uh, absolutely, so um, I've been working in prisons for 10 years and um, the book covers my first year of working in prisons, which was when we had, uh, so in 2010, we had the first set of cuts that came in um, and that was through the coalition government and then it was carried on. So we cut the prison budget by about a third and it was prison officers and staffing that formed the majority mm. of the budget and then we saw violence so over the past 10 years um i can only speak to my what i've witnessed the violence went through the roof mm. and that's because prison officers the numbers were cut and that was was that prisoner on prison violence or prisoner on prisoner prisoner on staff mm. and so um it became a dangerous environment because we didn't have the officers and and this book um i i hope i celebrate the role of healthcare staff and prison officers who we're often forgotten mm, yes. and the work that they put in to keeping us all safe um, and protecting us um, sometimes from the worst of the worst, they put their lives on the line. Sometimes they put their bodies, you know, in danger to protect us. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes they see themselves as the fourth emergency service or the forgotten emergency service. Um, and I think we do need to celebrate them as frontline workers and what they do to keep us all safe. But if we don't have adequate numbers, we'll be in chaos, which is what's happening, unfortunately. And to talk about what sort of people I see in prisons, um, it is societal. So we do see a higher proportion of people who've had a background in care homes. Yeah, We do see, um, I think, approximately 70% of people report having mental health issues. Yeah. And if they didn't have mental health issues coming to prison... Mm. They're probably going to develop them. It's a brutalistic situ- situation. It's a, it's a brutalising experience. So even if you went in with a mild or moderate mm. mental health issue, um, it's, it's going to be impacted and worsened. Is there
2: treatment there for mental health issues? If, uh,
4: yeah. So I was very ignorant before I went into working in prisons and I kind of fell into it. I was always wanting to be a homeless GP and work with a homeless community. And so I found that with the homeless community, they would commit petty crimes in winter mm. so that they could be in prison where it'd be warm and then have food.
1: Yeah.
4: Um, and that's, I followed my homeless patients into prison and it was a new world. I wasn't aware there are paramedics, there are mental health teams, forensic psychiatrists, uh, dental technicians, dental therapists, dentists, oh. chiropodists, podiatrists, GPs, nurses, healthcare workers, There's this entire infrastructure looking after the 88,000 men, women and children we have currently in custody. I wasn't aware of that. But a lot of the people that we see who have got mental health issues are going to be sectioned, have been sectioned, are in the process of being sectioned and need to be in a mental health unit, which we don't have because we've lost 70% of the mental health units. The community beds aren't there. So we do see people in prison. Who should not be in prison? Unfortunately,
2: and and the issues about I mean one of the things and I do as a, I'm, a, I'm a charity volunteer and I talk to prisoners quite regularly as, as a result of that. But I mean one of the issues is about and I suppose it's a question for both of you about the the literacy levels, the education levels. You know, which which obviously come through when do you will see it as you know you're talking about children before. Yeah. In t- in terms of in terms of that, and obviously that goes all the way through into adulthood, doesn't it? I yeah. mean, do you, do you do you do you see that as a
3: common thread? Um, I do. I, I don't know whether you know, but something like a figure in excess of fifty percent of those in prison are functionally illiterate. Mm. Now that's not a coincidence. Mm. If you can't read and write, it makes life outside so difficult. It's not just that you can't read nice books. It's that you can't fill in forms. You can't apply for jobs. You sometimes miss out on the right benefits that you're entitled to. Um, you get a letter and you don't know that it's telling you your electricity is about to be cut off. It makes life really difficult and it just puts you in a place that separates you from everywhere else. I mean, Chris Grayling said, we shouldn't be giving prisoners books. But, you know, if you or I, or any of you, I guess, were unlucky enough to be locked up in a cell, almost the first thing we'd want to do is get in a good supply of books so that we could mentally be somewhere else. People who can't read just can't do that. They They are just shut off from it. And, you know, I don't know what what you think, Shahid, but I feel that an awful lot of crime happens because defendants are people who don't empathize with how other people react or feel to what they're doing. They commit a crime of violence because they don't stop and think what it feels like to be the victim. And if you ask yourselves how we learn to empathize, quite a lot of it is when we are little kids Mm -hmm. and we read you learn what's going on in other people's minds by reading what they're thinking in books. Because I can't look at Shahid and read his mind, but if I read his book, I know what he was thinking. And I think that people who are cut off from reading are at real risk of not developing that talent, that ability in the way that society really needs them
4: to. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree. And so um, it's exactly as you say. And it's a, a staggering statistic that approximately 50% of the people in prison have a reading age of less than an 11-year-old. Mm. Um, and we have excellent charities like the Shannon Trust Literacy Agency, um, which goes in and teaches people to read. And I think one of my proudest moments is because I believe in the power of literature as medicine. I believe in therapeutic literature. I believe exactly as you say, that if you teach people to read, they can increase their empathy and their sympathy and widen your experience as a human being, as a sentient being. Um, And then you'll see someone who is functionally illiterate learn to read. And then if you encourage them and say, okay, well, you know, if you want to bring me a poem, I'd like to... And that's one of the the main features of this book is I, I follow a guy called Jamie Lavelle who is illiterate and really violent And then over the course of 12 months, learns to read and writes poetry and is less violent. And that is something that we see, that teachers see. It's the power of literacy and it's the power of literature. And that's been my proudest moment to be involved in things like that, where you encourage someone to read and then you see the change in their behavior. We don't want this revolving door of seeing the same faces, And it's they're in the same position. You do everything you can for them. They're on drugs. You detox them. You give them mental health issue, um, mental health issue support. Then they're out, and then they come back in, and they're back on drugs, and they've still got the mental health issues, and they've committed another violent crime. We need to break the cycle of crime, and one of the ways we can do that is through literature. Because prison is supposed to be about rehabilitation, isn't it, as well as as well as punishment? But who does the rehabilitation? Prison officers and if we haven't got the prison officers we have very little rehabilitation if you've got if you have got so few officers that you can't even unlock the prisoners because it's not safe on your wing and they're going to have to spend their entire day locked behind their door what rehabilitation is that
3: and of course it's a major problem not so much at the end of the scale where people are going to prison for 12 months because frankly the amount of rehab you can do in 12 months is pretty limited, but where people are being sent to prison for years and years and years. So like m- most of the cases I was doing at Old Bailey were homicide cases, mm-hmm. and most of the murders where there were convictions, the sentence inevitably was life imprisonment with a minimum of, big gasp, but this is where the law is, 1825, 30. Years before they can apply for parole. But if they can't do the courses, they're never going to get out. Of course, there's actually an argument that says, well, the person they killed is never going to get out either. They're never going to get out of a coffin. So there's arguments all ways round. But we send people to prison for these massively long sentences. And then what? The day comes when eventually they get released. So I send a 16-year-old to prison. I don't choose the sentences. I find them according to the rules that I have to apply. If he's killed someone with a knife and it's been a brutal attack and it's got aggravating features, he goes to prison for um, 17 years, say, before he can apply for parole. He comes out in his mid-thirties. He may have had a limited amount of work done with him. He will have been in an environment through his formative years now, which is completely abnormal, completely unnatural. It'll be almost Mm -hmm. male-dominated, almost all men older than he was at the very beginning. He will have been forced into whatever... The regime was in the place where he was staying. Uh, He'll have had no normal relationships because how do you do that in a prison? And what do we think is going to happen? Do we think he's going to walk out and seamlessly slip back into society? Because if we do, we're kidding ourselves.
2: And the amount of healthcare, I mean, this is about a a sort of all-encompassing Care isn't it? Where healthcare is, is a part, a very important part
4: of that, but just a part of that. Yeah. So I think we need to look at who we're sentencing and what it actually achieves. So I completely agree with what Wendy is saying about mm. the fact that most, the vast, vast majority of people will be released. They mm. will be your neighbours. They will be part of society. Mm. And we need to make sure that when these people are released, they are better people than they were when they went into prison. And if we can't confidently say that that's what's happening, then it's not working and prisons aren't working. But then I think also we have a situation. So, you know, a hypothetical situation where you've got someone who's 80 years old, they're bed bound, they're in a nursing home, they're, uh, they're completely immobile. Mm -hmm. They, they require full care, which means someone to help them eat and wash. And they are convicted of doing something. Uh, a historical crime, and then they're sentenced to prison. We don't have the hoists, mm. we can't look after them, but they have been sent to prison. So that's a really difficult situation where you think, is a custodial sentence necessarily always the best thing to do in every situation? Mm. Or could we consider non-custodial sentences or other ways of managing it? Because we are not a hospital, we don't have hospitals in prisons that there isn't 24-hour care. We don't have hospital beds. They are cells which are locked up at night and then unlocked in the morning, unless there's an emergency. So it's not like hospital. We don't have, you know, we can't give drips, for instance, we don't always have access to all the equipment. need. I remember we need. in your book,
2: you know, you 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 had some of your medical equipment taken away from you yeah. because because they the prison officers felt it was it was
4: dangerous. So no watches. You need that. Yeah. So no watches. Nothing that's got any smart technology. So you know, none of your Apple <laughs> watches. Sorry, I do
5: apologise. Yeah,
4: nothing like that. Nothing with batteries. And then obviously we do have some equipment like ECGs machines and things that have been vetted, but it's not a fully equipped hospital. It's like a GP practice in the sense we have low-level type yeah. things, but it, it's not like, you know, we have the full needs to look after someone who is as vulnerable as the example I've given.
3: But that shouldn't happen, Shahid. It obviously does. It does. Because you were dealing with it. Yeah. But it shouldn't. Because if someone is in a state where there's a question as to whether you can cope with them, I should have been getting a report saying he is or he isn't fit to be detained, because sometimes people just aren't. People are going to be wondering how it can be that someone who is bedbound and, and in the state you're describing can be committing a crime of a nature so bad that they're being sent to prison. The classic way in which it happens is um, historic sex cases. Yeah. So sexual offenses are committed when a man's in his twenties, thirties, forties, and years and years later, the complaint comes forward there's a trial he's convicted in his eighties and that that's how that situation absolutely can arise. Yeah, yeah. hopefully it doesn't happen that often, but it is a problem
4: and and you know then we as prison gps we're like, "What are we going to do it's really difficult it's really tricky, and then we also have people who and again, often it's historical sex crimes but you know, um, they've got diagnosis, a palliative diagnosis, and we know that they're about to die. Um, and then transferring them to a hospice mm. can be really challenging. Or allowing someone to die with dignity in a prison can be really difficult. Because at the end of the day, it's not a ward with beds. They are cells that we lock up at night. So these are the challenges that I think I as a GP didn't understand before I became a prison GP. Um, And if we raise awareness, it's really low down on the political agenda. I think that's something that we all recognize. If we talk about the NHS, you know, people say, oh, yes, the NHS. But if you talk about these sort of environments, or if you talk about prisoners, penal reform, prison reform, it's pretty, I can't think of anything that would be lower on the political agenda. Mm. And what we need to do to counteract that and to Affect change is what we're doing here, which is you guys have turned up here. Um, You're, you know, you're talking to us about our experiences. And then we raise awareness um, and we don't have to have all of the answers, but we start a conversation. And
2: no, I I absolutely agree. And I I think it is very important that we do have these conversations, which is you know, one reason why I'm so delighted that we're having this event today. But do you, how, how, how much effect do you think, and it's a question for both of you, about, about family support and how much family support can assist or the lack of family support can detract from somebody's, I suppose, both their offence but also their recovery. I mean, when did you see that? And did you see that
3: when you were a judge? I would see... People in the dock and their families in the public gallery. Mm. And clearly, they would be utterly bemused as mm. the evidence was coming out as to what their their loved family one. members, yes, their, their loved one had done. But you know all, well, we've spoken a lot about the defendants, and that's where mm. you are, where I was sitting on the bench as well as looking at the defendants and their family in the Those public victims. gallery, mm. I would be looking at the victims. Mm. I'd be looking into the eyes of the bereaved parents um, or where someone had not died and was giving evidence as to what had happened to them, the absolute trauma of mm. going through again what had happened to them. Whilst we are saying, and we know that this is right, that... It's the circumstances that breed the crime. Not all people who live in bad circumstances end up committing crimes. If someone goes out and robs someone at knife point, they've chosen to do that. Mm. There may be all sorts of pressures that have led them to do it. And it may explain why they've done it. But it doesn't excuse them, They've do. still chosen to cross that line, haven't they? And so to come back, they have. I mean, what I try to say in, in the book, and this is all sounding so heavy, um, <laughs> neither of our books are actually heavy to read. No, they or, I, I've actually just written some stories about how it actually pans out in a courtroom. But it's very difficult to see how you can just ignore the fact that someone has chosen to do that, even if you can understand why they've done it. And their parents may be heartbroken. It's usually the mum and the grandma that I see, may be heartbroken that their child has behaved in that way. But somehow it has happened and they haven't found a way of dealing with it. Now, it may be that that they couldn't and they couldn't access the help that they needed. But very often you get parents of young defendants who just won't accept what their child's done, just won't accept it. Do they accept the child or do they just not accept the behaviour? They they accept their child. They don't accept their child did the thing that they have been convicted of. Mm. I One of the last cases I did was a young man who deliberately drove at another person using your car as a weapon had become rather flavor of the month at one time. And he knocked down this other young man and trapped him underneath the car. Not deliberately, he deliberately knocked him down, but the result had been the victim became trapped under the car. This defendant drove for two miles with that young man underneath the car, by which time there wasn't a lot left of the young man. And when he was convicted, and I imposed the sentence I had to impose, which was life imprisonment with a long tariff, Mm. the parents in the public gallery were beside themselves with anger at me, the system, the jury, because they would not accept that their son had done what it was perfectly obvious to everyone else in the courtroom, he had done. And if that family maintained that attitude whilst their son was in prison, well, they weren't going to be helping him get a lot better.
2: No, that's, 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 very, that's very obvious, isn't it? Because, because people do, I think, by and large, although it's a, it's a generalisation, the people that they love and respect, their opinions are so important. Them. Yeah. How about, how about you, Shahid?
4: Yeah, so I think one of the, one of the questions I get asked a lot, and it's, and it's um, the opening line to the book, is why would anyone want to work with thieves, murderers and rapists? Mm-hmm. And, it's a really, and it's a really important question. Um, and if I know what my patient has done, it can be really difficult to have unconditional positive regard yeah. and to see them in the best light. So to protect myself from that, I try not to know what they've done, which is relatively easy in a prison because we have access to their healthcare records, but all of their prison records and their crime is on a different computer system called Nomis. Um, But I I take your point that we are all humans. And when you hear that the person in front of you, who, who might be really charming and pleasant and friendly, when you know what they've done and it's something that you personally find hideous and,
1: mm.
4: you know, it it makes you want to be sick, it's really difficult to be their doctor. Mm. Um, but then if you are going to punish them and give them substandard care, you shouldn't be there. You shouldn't yeah. be doing the job. That's not your role, is it? That's not your... You're not there to... I'm not there to judge, you know, and I'm there in my capacity as a doctor to provide healthcare, And if I can't do it to the best of my ability, that's not the right environment. That's not to say that after a consultation, there aren't times you walk out and you feel very confused ethically and morally Mm. about being nice to someone who hasn't been nice to someone else. But that's what makes us all humans. If I was a robot doing my job, then it would be different and I wouldn't be giving of myself. But that said, those cases are few and far between the vast majority of people that I deal with haven't committed things that I would find as morally repugnant. That's not to say that I like what they've done mm-hmm. or, you know, I think, oh yeah, I could have done that. No, you know, they have crossed the line. As as we've said, they've crossed the line and it is wrong. But some of the things that you hear are really... you can't You can't forget them.
2: No, I understand that. I just want to... <laughs> To ask one more question, then we're going to questions from the audience. This is to give you a, a chance to prepare your questions, audience, okay? Because it's something that you touched on, um, Wendy, which I think is really important, which is the victim. Yeah. Because all crimes have a victim. Sometimes the victim is sadly dead, sometimes it's a it's a it's a different sort of sort of crime, but all crimes have a victim. And I suppose what I'm going to ask you is about. What sort of role you feel that the victim and the effect on the victim has in terms of the role that you have, Wendy, and that you, that you have, Shahid, around, around dealing, and you've touched on it just before, really, in terms of what, what, what people have done, in terms of how you feel. Do you think the victim has enough voice, I suppose, is what I'm, is what I'm saying here, because I know exactly what you mean about the, the, the ashen faces of the, Of the victims family,
3: So there are all different sorts of victims. Mm. I think what you mean by a victim is someone who has been directly... Yes. ...the person who has been hurt by the crime. Yes. So almost everything that I did at the Old Bailey had either a dead body or a nearly dead body in it. So by and large, I was looking at not the person who had been the victim. But the family. But the family. And they were undoubtedly the victims, undoubtedly the victims. But, you know, also witnesses are victims too. You're walking along minding your own business. You happen to be passing a chicken shop. I have no idea why chicken shops feature so (laughs) largely in crime, but they do. And you look down an alleyway and you see something happening. You were really unlucky to see it, but you saw it. Do you go in and help or do you go on? And if you're brave enough to go in and help and you then end up as a witness in a courtroom, you'd be amazed at how people are affected a year later,
0: two years
3: later, by the experience they've had. Mm. I did a case not long before I retired where a guy had come down from his third floor flat because he could hear someone screaming down on the pavement. And he said, I knew, I knew he'd been stabbed. I could just tell. And when he was challenged by the defense barrister as to how he could possibly tell, he said three weeks before the same thing had happened. It was that sort of area in London. And he said, I said to myself, that's just a fox screaming. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. And a man died. And he said he looked at the jury, and he said, "I wasn't going to make that mistake again." So he went down, and he sat with this man who was dying, and he listened to what the man said about who'd done it, and he remembered the details, and he was able to repeat them to the police, which led to this defendant being arrested. And the defense barrister was saying he was wrong and he'd made mistakes and he was lying. And and this man was really upset because his neighbors had told him not to get involved. He'd called up and said, bring some water, bring a blanket. And they'd all called down saying, don't get involved, come back upstairs. And he hadn't. He'd sat with that man till he died. And then he'd come to court And then he'd been called a liar. And you could see he was completely bemused by this. I can't do anything about that in front of the jury. But when the jury had gone, I said to him, don't worry about what you've been called and what you've said. The jury will sort that out. And I said to him, what you've got to remember is every one of us wishes we have been brave enough to do mm. what you did. And I have the power, they don't give judges many powers, but they give them this, to make a little award for him. Mm. He gets his name, he gets a certificate, and I gave him, I think it was a thousand pounds. But something, just to say, you we recognize you're a victim here mm. too. That's that's a really
2: powerful story, Wendy. Yeah, and absolutely right in terms of that person did what he felt was the right was the right thing to do. And and do you see the impact of victims sometimes on the people that you are that you are treating?
4: So no, not really, not as much because obviously mm. what you're seeing is yeah. you know the actual crux of it, and okay. I'm dealing with the aftermath of it. I think sometimes when um, you have a process where the victim can come in. Mm. and speak to people and say, this is what happened to me. And it's not necessarily to the people who yeah. have been involved in in the crime that affected them. But if they give a testimony or, or a witness testimonial, you do sometimes see prisoners afterwards to say, that really affected me and I hadn't really thought about it. And again, that thing that we keep going back to about empathy, yes, um, which I think is really important, and which is why we wrote our books, is to show you what our worlds are like so that you don't, so when we're walking through our days, you walk beside us. But I think empathy is something that we really, in these difficult times, we really need to concentrate on. Yeah.
2: Okay, right. Now, questions. There's a lady there in the in the middle. Okay, thank you. Hello. Hiya. First of all, thank you for a really fascinating discussion. I just wondered, because recently we've had quite a few books that have been very acclaimed that have focused on imprisonment incarceration I'm thinking The Nickel Boys by Whitehead and A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James so I think I was just interested in your books and if you were influenced by any fictional representations of imprisonment court systems because obviously it is something that is quite prominent at the moment so I was just interested in that relationship between that side and the writing and your experiences in these books
4: Um, so I think crime and crime podcasts and true crime are really having a moment. And they have been for a little while. I think when you look at, so something that, to answer your question, something that I quite enjoyed was Serial, which is the podcast from America. And there's been developments with Adnan having been released as a consequence of the evidence that was brought up in Serial. So that was one that um, I've really enjoyed. And, And I've done a few podcasts myself related to crime things like that. So yeah, it is something that I'm interested in, and I think. But as I was saying earlier, I never thought I was going to write this book. I write gothic horror sci-fi, which could not be, you know, it's diagram... So I'm getting tongue-tied just thinking about how different (laughs) it is. It's almost like a split personality. So I wasn't going to write this book. And yeah, it's really fascinating how it's having a moment and how... Hopefully, what this means is that it will go up the political agenda a little bit more. When people, when more people are showing an interest in crime and punishment, it could lead to positive changes, which was what we need as a society.
3: Wendy, yeah, what I did because it just wouldn't be right to to take actual cases and tell tell people's names. That would be a, a cruelty that um, I couldn't justify. So what I did was I took lots of different things I've seen happen in court over the years. And everything in each of the stories in the book is something that has really happened. But I've put them together in a totally different way. And I'd love to be able to say that I was influenced by reading other books. But in fact, what what was influencing me was every one of you, could easily end up in a courtroom. I mean easily, and I don't mean necessarily in the dock. I'm sure you won't be in the dock. Um, Some of you may work in the system um, and end up there. Some of you may be witnesses, but any one of you, if you're on the electoral register, could end up as a juror. And so the point about a courtroom is it's there to serve. It's there to serve the public. And so few people really understand What happens? Why we pass the sentences we do? What happens in a courtroom? And so all I was trying to do was to say, come and sit beside me on the (coughs) bench. Come and sit here and see what it looks like from this point of view. Watch the things that are happening as they're happening in front of me. And tell me if you think I got it right. So so I wasn't really looking at it from that point of view. But I do have to say that what it has triggered me into doing is to reading a lot more of those sorts of books. And I'm loving it. Okay. Right. Next question. Over there.
2: Yeah so I think I was curious really in terms of obviously it's very I work
1: in social work so I think to give a bit of a context it's very easy to sit and say this is wrong about the system that's wrong about the system but I was curious there's bits where I look and I
2: think oh I wish we had a system that was more similar to so-and-so or that involved more of this more restorative practice I wondered if that was something you'd experienced in your roles?
4: Um, Yeah definitely so If we want reform and if we want to follow success stories, which is what we all want, we could follow what they're doing in Scandinavia. So for instance, in Norway. So our budget, the way it works now, is our prison budget is approximately 5 billion. And recidivism or reoffending the price of that is approximately 20 20 billion. So we've got something wrong if we're spending four times the amount of money on the effects of the crime rather than the crime itself. And what Norway did is that they switched it around. So they spend a lot more money on rehabilitation, rehabilitating people, educating them, getting them a trade, and making sure that when you'll know this as a social worker, we release one or uh, one in six people to homelessness. What are they going to do? They're going to commit crimes. So this is what the Norway system sort of addressed. And that's what we need. And what they've done in uh, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, is that they've ended up closing prisons So it's a lot more money in the short term, but long term, it saves us a lot of money and it cuts down on the violent crime rate. And our violent crime rate in the UK has gone up every year since 2013, despite sending more people to prison than we ever have before. And we send more people to prison than any other country in Western Europe. So it's it's clearly not working and it's so expensive.
3: Oh no. Yeah, but it's a really interesting question. And it makes me realize what a tiny little narrow bit of the market I, I've been functioning in. Because you're working with people um, at one end of it all. And you're working with people at the other end of it all. And I'm just in this little place in the middle. And not only that, you're dealing with whole Both of you with whole tranches of people who will commit all sorts of crimes, whereas I was only really dealing with very, very serious crime. But what's interesting is if you look at the sentencing guidelines, they don't say it's all about rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is one of about five things they list, but the principal one that they list is punishment. Mm. Now, you can understand that when you're dealing with murders, but you do wonder about it when you're dealing with shoplifting, don't yeah. you? And it's because we are geared, I say we, the system, our system is geared right across the board to looking at punishment. And yes, we do look for non-custodial sentences lower down the range, so before I went to the Old Bailey, I was sitting with another court when I was a baby judge. I was sitting at another court called Snaresbrook. very, very <coughs> busy court. And I used to deal with much lower levels of crime. And one of the things I could do was to give someone a deferred sentence and ask him to come back every month for six months and tell me how he was getting on with his life, what he was doing. And it was fascinating Mm. because I get to know them and they get to know me. And it was sort of, wasn't exactly like a tea party. They had to come into court. They had to explain themselves, but they'd come along really proud. You know, one of them came along with a photograph of his new baby and it was a whole different thing that emerged from it. One of them, one young man who was on drugs, died. And his dad came to court. I knew he had died. I was told he'd died and that he wouldn't be coming. And I wasn't expecting <laughs> anyone to come. His dad came and got into the witness box and told me about how hard he'd tried, that he didn't want me to think I hadn't, he, that his son hadn't tried. Mm-hmm. It had just been too difficult. And I thought if I'd sent him to prison, he might still have been alive. So, you know, you do the best you can. Yeah. That's right. And I
2: think there's a there's a theme isn't there about early intervention and the amount of money that's spent on I remember some, he, hearing some statistics, I used to be a child protection lawyer, about if you spend a pound on early intervention, you reap that 100 yeah. times yeah. over.
3: And Absolutely. of course, there's there's that expense. And and forgive me Alwyn, you reap it not just in money. Yes. You reap it in the saving of grief. You do mm. you do
2: Sorry, one more question, and then and then I think we probably... Um, Hello.
5: Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, Steve. Um, two questions. One, voluntary volunteers. I've been a witness service volunteer for... <laughs> Sorry, um, is that better? <laughs> That's better. Um, volunteers, I've been a witness service volunteer for 15 years. I've also been a chair of governors of a primary school in a notorious area of Birmingham. So the conditions... And issues that I've experienced are to do with education and very much finding solutions to people saying, I didn't know about that. And I was lucky enough to actually shadow a judge for a day. And I've done some writing about that as well. So the question really is, could we encourage more people? Primary school pupils aren't allowed in court, I think, until they're 12. Except if they're a witness or in their own special measures. But the questions I want to ask is: Do we tap the experience and expertise of volunteers enough in the law? And also, have we got that balance of encouraging those in education to literally go and visit, find out? Thank you,
3: Wendy. Do you want to start um, with that? So this stuff about diversity and community relations, judges work. It- The very beginning of my book is about what it's like for me at the end of a day when I've been dealing with a murder all day and I'm sitting in the courtroom when everyone else has gone waiting for a group of school children to come in. And what I do with them is explain to them how it all works and then give them roles to play. And you know, one of them will be the judge and one of them will be a prosecuting barrister and a few of them will be defense barristers and they will be witnesses and a couple of them the couple who are causing difficulty I'll put in the dock and the um and others will be jurors and let them act out a little scenario that I give them and you'd be amazed actually Steve you probably wouldn't be amazed but I think some people would be amazed at how cute these children are, and how sharp their sense of justice is, how they really get what justice is about. But I totally agree that we ought to be getting out from the courts into the classrooms. And one of the things that bothers me is how difficult juries can find to sit in a group of 12 and discuss things. Why don't we teach our kids that? Why don't we teach our children to sit down in groups of 10 or 12 and discuss something? How to express a view, how to listen to somebody else's view, how to adjust your own views. We we don't teach children things like that. Maybe they do up here. They don't down in London. And I sort of think the courtroom is a microcosm of life. Mm. There's an awful lot everyone can learn. And I would love to tap your word. I'd love to tap um those who are willing to help inform and work with those outside the courtroom who would really benefit from understanding what it's like inside
4: it yeah, I agree I think I, I agree with you Steve. I think what well, we have got amazing volunteers who work within the prison service so within well work in prison so For instance, we have Samaritans, we have listeners, we have insiders, we have the Shannon Trust, lots of charities. And if anybody is even vaguely interested in going to a prison and volunteering, I would say 100% do it. Because however difficult it is, and it it can be, however challenging it is, and it can be, you do learn so much uh, about it demystifies the process, first of all. But also you learn so much about yourself. You find untapped reserves of resilience and empathy and compassion. And it's an enriching experience for us as people who aren't prisoners. For prisoners, possibly not so much.
2: Okay. Well, thank you very much. I think we are now, before my watch starts to yell at me again, um, I think that we are now at the end of our, of our session. So thank you very much for, for, for being here. And thank you very, very much to Wendy and Shahid for an absolutely fascinating discussion about what you're facing. Thank you. you. uh...
1: Can I just echo uh, Alwyn's thanks, and to thank Olwyn as well for sharing it and to you for your questions. Um, I- I've read both books and they are um, life-changing in terms of our empathy and understanding and I do commend them to you. And by strange coincidence, we have a bookstore outside, a we'll lovely <laughs> bookshop, <laughs> we'll be very happy to sell you copies and I know our two guests, writers will be very happy to, s- s- to sign them. But let's just give one final round of applause for our wonderful <laughs>
5: Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at B. fest All information about the festival and upcoming events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios
4: for writing West Midlands.